Hello, this is Michelle from the Lost to Light podcast. I am joined with my lovely co-host, Angie Hansen. How are you? Hi, Michelle. How are you? Oh, I'm good. It's cold here in the Midwest. Oh, yeah. Cold. It's. I think it is going to hit zero today here in Nebraska, so I'm excited. Well, that's better than the negatives we've been having. Yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I'm excited, Sandy. We have a lovely guest on today. I actually met... Um, our guest on an online uh, writers group called Story Summit. It's a, a group that is there to inspire and engage and inform the storyteller. They bring together people from all over the globe and they have uh, online classes. And I happened to be in a class called the Corsa in Miracles that was led by my writing coach, Deborah Engel. And in that class, I met Stacy Powells. Mm-hmm. So we are going to be joined shortly with Stacy. Uh, Stacy is the author of a book called Empty Cupboards. And in that book, she talks about, she writes uh, personal essays. She, she talks about uh, the ex- severe depression that she experienced. And I found that book extremely interesting. So without further ado, we're going to be joined here shortly with Stacy, and we'll ask Stacy to tell us about herself, and we will find out through the course of our conversation how Stacy went from uh, her trauma or loss in her life and how she has found her light again. Stacy, welcome. Hi, Hi, thank you. What, what was your most uh, interesting part of the book? Because a lot of people talk about the uh, book uh, chapter entitled Sperm and Meatloaf. <laughs> Oh, you know, I don't know that I had actually a favorite one. Okay. I think it was just your honesty. I see honesty. Angie writing it down. She's like, I got to listen. What is that about? Like, <laughs> what happened? It was like one of those moments because this book, Empty Cupboards, grew from a nervous breakdown I had in 2001. And I was a little bit shocked. I had a nervous breakdown because I wasn't allowed to break down. I came from a family of uh, hard workers. My dad owned a pharmacy in Beverly Hills. He was the Beverly Hills pharmacist before his passing in 93. Up before the sun comes home late at night. And I just had that work ethic. And so I always had to keep the plates juggling. And after my divorce, I still had to keep the plates juggling, even um, among a very horrendous divorce. And there came a time um, where my plates came crashing down. And I it, it, I think I was shocked that it happened. And the writer in me was in really horrible moments. I knew that I would write about the moments I was going through. In the back of my head, there's always this little person with a typewriter. Just, just <laughs> I can see it back there. Just one day, this is going to be a story. And it took me about 20 years to, to write all these stories. But... Um, if you want, I can read the passage about the breakdown. And yes, please. Yeah, it's as part of the book, and um, it'll just uh, it's a little bit. I won't bore you too much, but it's um, it's called the neurasthenia and the neurasthenia. Neurasthenia, I love that word. I found it, of course, using a thesaurus. is a it's, it's about a breakdown. It happened when I was walking upstairs to my bedroom. It was the spring of two thousand one. I dropped my two boys off at school, one middle school and one high school, and inhaled a cream cheese muffin on my way home. After almost 18 years, my music licensing job at Paramount Pictures had imploded. 
I didn't know how I was going to make ends meet. I was tired of asking my family for help. I felt the walls of my brain closing in on itself. On step eight or step nine of the stairs, I halted. My hand was on the wood banister. I staggered, unable to catch my breath, then sat down on the carpeted stair. I was experiencing my first panic attack. I thought it was a heart attack or that my asthma was about to go into full-blown assault in my lungs, but it wasn't the physical sensations that got me. It was the understanding that at that moment, if there has been a gun in the house, someone else would have had to pick up my kids from school. And that is when I called my mom and I said, please come over. I said, I'm having a break. And she helped me find a psychiatrist. She helped me go through the bills. Um, she had come over right after I had opened the, the, the cupboards, you know, the bathroom cupboard, and just took everything and just had a moment where screaming, emptying the cupboards, throwing everything around. I mean, this wasn't me. And so I knew something was terribly wrong and, and that I had to be there for my boys and I had to be there for myself. And so... Um, for I had a bad day for 18 months. I was on Celexa and Wellbutrin. And what it did was, well, I gained a whole bunch of weight from those drugs. And at the same time, it just numbed me out. How it worked for me was it just, I was flatlined. I didn't really feel anything. But importantly, I wasn't feeling like I wanted to kill myself. So um, from that, um, that's how these stories sort of started because I thought, why did I have a nervous breakdown? This is not supposed to happen to me. So I started going back into my life and I've always felt that when people have had enough, it's because things pile up in their life. It's one thing after another, after another, after another, and then we just reach our end zone and then we're done. And that's what happened. And so I went back on my life and, and remembered all these things that I had pushed back into my Pandora's box of just not wanting to remember certain events. And I started writing about him. And it's amazing, you know, you know, you, you guys are writers, you know what happens when you start writing, you start remembering <laughs> what happens. It's the, it's the most bizarre thing, how the brain works. And so I had more than 31 stories, but I didn't want a huge book. I can probably do a whole other book on other stuff that happened, but these are 31 stories. And it's, it's incredible how, when I look back, how I made it how through some of the things that I had gone through and that I didn't implode earlier in my in in my life. I think Angie and I both can relate to some of that. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I mean it, um, yeah. I was struck by your just your honesty and how real it was. Well, you and have I think to. That was probably the most favorite part about my book is how real you are. Well, you have to if if you're going to be authentic and you're going to try and help people. I can't tell you how many people have women, of course, have come to me and said, "Oh my God, I can't believe you talked about that." Something like that happened to me too, and I said, "Yeah, I put that in because it was a shameful moment in my life. We all can't get through this life without doing something that was incredibly shameful." The the spur and meatloaf story. <laughs> was just more like an eye rolling thing for me. It was like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Um <laughs> just I think you need to share with our listeners uh, more about the story. You know, I mean what's what's this rated? You gotta tell me what this is rated here. <laughs> it's 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 clean, but <laughs> I want, it's clean, but um I I so 
I, let me just kind of go back. So when I, I first got married in, in, um, when did I get married? 19, first, first, I'm on my second and final husband now. So I kind of have a tendency to forget the first one. Um, my first husband, we got, we eloped on Cinco de Mayo, 1984. And four months after we eloped to Reno to get married because we weren't catching any fish, we decided to get married instead. Um, he broke his leg. I'm not going to go into the story of how that's in another book I'm writing right now, another memoir, but he broke his leg because he was drunk. And I took him to a hospital in Burbank, St. Joseph's Medical Center in Burbank, California. And a Dr. Herbert Huddleston was called in at 3.30 in the morning to put the bone back in because it was a compound fracture, put the bone back in, sew it up, and then put a, they put a half splint, a half cast on the leg so the wound could heal. And then they would put a full on cast. And this is important because my husband at the time was an actor and he just started getting starring roles after being in the business for 15 years. He started doing really well on television shows like um, TJ Hooker and Matt Houston and um, Auto Man and Wonder Woman and all those, you know, 1980s, 80s TV shows. And so what happened was, is that cast burned the back of his leg he woke up from the surgery screaming that his leg was on fire, but instead of taking the cast off and finding out what was going on, they just shoved morphine and Demerol in him. And a week later, when they took the cast off, it, the top of his thigh from all the way down to his heel was black. So, And I had just started working at Paramount Pictures in the music department at the time. That was four months into my new job there. And what ensued over our entire marriage was a huge lawsuit, number one, after everything was, I mean, he had 13, 14 surgeries to try to repair the damage done to his leg because you do not go into a hospital with a broken leg and come out with third degree burns. That just doesn't happen. And it should have been a reciprocity case. Basically, somebody effed up somewhere and this had to happen. So, um, so for 15 years of our marriage, my kids, our kids were born, they were born into chaos because there were surgeries, there were loss, there was a huge lawsuit, the hospital got let out of the case, the doctors got let out of the case, the nurses got let out of the case, because at the time, the plastic pillows that his leg was resting on did not have a failure to warn label on them, meaning they didn't have a label on them that said, do not use these pillows in conjunction with orthopedic patients. And because the medical profession, there, is a there was a $250,000 ceiling on pain and suffering if you sued a doctor, but there wasn't on the manufacturer of the pillows. So the pillow company got nailed for the entire lawsuit. It was wow. so ridiculous and it wasn't their fault at all. And he was the only lawyer I liked in all the lawyers of the doctors, the nurses and all this kind of stuff. I liked him. I remember him walking out of the courtroom. And I just said, I'm sorry. And he just rolled his eyes and walked away. But our whole first marriage was about this burn and the legs. He lost his acting career. His alcoholism got worse. Like I said, we conceived two kids in between all the surgeries. So they were born into this chaos. And um, I kept wanting it to be okay. I kept thinking, well, maybe after Father's Day, he will stop drinking and he will realize that he, at least he can still walk on his leg. Maybe after this day, maybe after this day. And he was so miserable and continued to play the victim. And I'm not saying he wasn't a victim. He was totally a victim. Yet there comes a time in our life where we hopefully can look at what happened to us and use that for good somehow. And mm -hmm. that never happened. And so um, 
I remember working on the Arsenio Hall show. I was working at Paramount and I was the music licensing wench, I like to call it, for the first Arsenio Hall show. And they let me, so my asthma kept getting worse and worse and worse. It was totally stress-induced in Los Angeles, the smog and everything. And I asked my boss at Paramount Pictures, I said, can I move and keep my job? (laughs) Because it was phone, fax, computer. And so long story short, I became Paramount Pictures' first telecommuter in 1992. I moved to Mammoth Lakes with my first husband. Um, He continued to not want to move his life forward, continued to blame people. Um, He wanted to move to the mountains, but then it was my fault that he couldn't get anything going up there. I don't know. It was just his whole thing. Um, and so we divorced and I, because I just, I couldn't, I couldn't raise three kids. I already had two boys. I was trying to, to, to be a good mother with, and because of the divorce, I decided to move back down to Los Angeles for a little bit. Um, because I wanted the boys to be closer to their dad. I thought that's what a good mother would do. And it turned out to be a cluster. You know what down there, my older son got into horrible trouble. Um, their dad ended up, during the selling of our house and some of the lawsuit money, he ended up losing it all day trading and ended up living in his truck. Um, And so I'm trying to balance all, all of this, you know, and eventually in 2001, my boss at Paramount Pictures, who very supportive retires. And then I have to work under this horrible, horrible man. I wrote about him in the book who was just, he, he's the epitome of why the Me Too movement happened. Let's just put it that way. And he insisted I come, I couldn't work out of my house anymore. So driving from Santa Clarita to Wilshire Boulevard every day, being a single mother, just my asthma got bad again, blah, blah, blah. And one day I just, I, I had a breakdown. You know, I just, I just got to be too much. And so um, I lost my job at Paramount and the kids were out of control my ex was talking horribly about me, you know, just blaming everything on me. The reason, the reason he was day trading was my fault, of course. Um, and so just one thing after another happened. And then eventually I, I pulled myself out of it um, with the help from a psychologist, psychiatrist, lots of girlfriends. I can't say enough about how important girlfriends are during times like this. And the ones that stick with you when you're going through a really horrible time. Those are the ones that are your sisters of a different mother, 100%, because my DNA sister, just not going to even go there. <laughs> read the last chapter in the book if you want to, if you want to read about that. Um, and I feel like this book has helped a lot of people because it, it shows that we're all vulnerable. We're not alone. We do have brain breaks and, and hopefully we can get help. And that was the big thing is to reach out for help. Wow. <laughs> you went through a lot. I, were you, were you yeah, worried? That, that were you crazy. worried that I wasn't going to talk? <laughs> no, 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 I love this. All, but I love I'm, I'm going to be on Amazon right now ordering oh, your book because I have not read it thank yet. You. So. <laughs> thank you. Um, but no, that's just, that's amazing. And how old were your boys uh, then about this time when you're, when everything kind of fell apart and when you had your breakdown? Um, so it was 2001. So uh, let's see, A7. 13, 14. I do not, I do not recommend having a nervous breakdown when you're raising two teenage boys on your own. Um, they, I wasn't paying attention. And the day, I remember the day I woke up, 
it was just the weirdest thing. I remember waking up going, wow, I'm not in a fog anymore. You know, I feel normal again. So I called my psychiatrist and say, okay, I'm going off the drugs today. I feel good. And he goes, no, 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 no. Because you can't go <laughs> off those right away. You have to, and I, and I did for a few days, but my brain started zapping. It, the weirdest thing, I, literally electrical stuff was going on in my brain. So um, you go off those gradually. And so I did. And then I started paying attention to what was going on with my teenage boys. And oh my gosh, they were just, um, take, they had taken, let me just say they had taken advantage of me not being in their face. Like parents need to be in the faces of teenagers these days. And my older one, my older one was really close to his dad. Um, you know, but his dad, you know, they played hockey together and things like that. And his dad just kept getting fired from jobs, you know, living in the truck, and he didn't want to see the kids. And my older one started acting out and doing really horrible, mini criminal things. And eventually, on December 23rd, 2003, I had him taken from my house at three in the morning to a lockdown boarding school in Montana. And I still remember the dream I have that, that night of that my right arm was cut off and I had big black stitches and my arm was bleeding. And I, I still remember that dream. And it's not uncommon when you lose somebody to have a dream that a limb has been cut off. I think that's common. Um, so he was there for 18 months. It was ex super expensive. I went through my 401k, no longer have a 401k because of that. Um, and he came out and it, while he was there, though, I, I missed this point. I was tired of living in Southern California. There, it, it just turned out to be a sugar honey iced tea show, put it like that, and uh, living there. Their dad, oh my gosh, I don't want this to be like me just slamming my ex-husband, but that's one thing that did happen. I decided to move back to Mammoth, um, where I moved when Paramount let me move and keep my job. And I sent my younger son up there and was cleaning up the house. But before I did that, the ex-husband came to stay at the house with his, his younger son, our younger son, because I had to do some stuff uh, to get ready to go to Mammoth. I come back and then Eric, my younger son, moves up there. And I'm looking in my storage room for my bikes, my skis, while working on the Arsenio Hall show I was able to, I was friends with the woman who, the talent agent who booked all the sports people. So I had baseball signed by Hank Aaron. I had hockey stuff signed by Wayne Gretzky. Um, I had a basketball signed by Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I had two sets of boxing gloves signed by Mike Tyson and Sugar Ray Leonard. I think that was Sugar Ray Leonard. All gone. Gone. Wow. And I called Eric and I, you know, screaming at him thinking he did something, right? He goes, mom, mom, mom. He goes, dad said those were all his stuff and you were saving them for him. Not the case. And so thousands of dollars of sports memorabilia, he sold them and then he moved to Thailand and bailed on his kids. So, <laughs> so that's what happened. And then I uh, moved back to Mammoth and started working at a radio station and at the newspaper where I was a journalist and... Um, and then in 2008, I find out that um, it was a weird thing. I had just met my now husband and we were sitting talking and I was leaning kind of on the bed like this. And this thing popped out of my, my abdomen 
And he's like, what is that? And I'm like, God, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's why I, you know, have some digestive problems. Maybe it's my stomach and I'm Jewish and we all have digestive problems, you know, so it goes way back. It's just a Jewish thing, you know? And so long story short, it was a tumor. Um, I had a five pound tumor coming out of my left kidney that was pushing up against my stomach and pushing up against the organs. So I had that taken out in 2018, uh, 2008 in December and the doctor said to me, he, when he came in uh, with the pathology, he goes, it was malignant. He goes, but he goes, we got it all. He goes, it was still in its little tumor sack. He goes, if we, you had come, you know, another three or four months down the road, he goes, we'd be having a whole different story because that would have been that. So I have angels on my shoulders. I, I, I know this is not a video, but I do uh, travel with my angels <laughs> everywhere <laughs> I have here. Um, because I got so lucky. I got so lucky. And because of that, I'm like, you know, I, I, I've been working my, my, you know what, I'm sorry, I'm trying not to swear. I have <laughs> working my, you can no, swear. I don't want to do that. <laughs> working my la 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 off. And I thought I got to write this book. And so all the stories started coming together and, um, and, uh, there it is. Well, Stacey, the thing I really enjoyed the most about your book was that it was written in essay forms. So mm -hmm. each chapter was like a different essay of your life. And I, I really, really enjoyed that format, which um, kind of brings me back to the next topic, which is uh, Story Summit, which I briefly mentioned already once. Do you want to share with us about the classes that you're doing on Story Summit, how long you've been involved with it. And then let's also talk about the new book that was just released, uh, the anthology, We See You, We Hear You, which you're a part of. Thank you. Yes. So Story Summit is really quite interesting. I, I still don't remember to this day how I found out that back in October of 2020, this organization called Story Summit was doing a conference in Cape Cod. And that was, of course, in the middle of COVID and everybody was all paranoid and everybody thought that my husband and I were crazy to fly out to Cape Cod in October 2020. But I did. Um, and I found I had found out that the uh, founder of Story Summit is a man named David Kirkpatrick. And he's the same David Kirkpatrick who was running Paramount Pictures um, at the time that I was working for Paramount Pictures in the music department. And I read about what his mission was with Story Summit. I thought, we're, we're going to go. So we went and everybody was very COVID safe. Nobody got COVID who was there. We were all wearing masks. A lot of the events were outside. And I started taking classes and workshops um, through Story Summit there. Um, Jeff Arch, who wrote Sleepless in Seattle, was my mentor for some of the classes I took there. And I just kept going back to the classes and taking more classes and really upping my writing game. And not only that, it's an amazing network of supportable and supported people and their writing. And um, so I've become very involved with the organization. I am, I am now facilitating, along with Deb Engel, who's the co-manager of Story Summit, an essay class, which starts the end of January. And it's a four-week class, two hours, one day a week. And we're going to just dive into essay writing because as, like you said, my last book, 
was all about personal essays about why I fell apart in 2001. And I'm very excited about that. I booked some amazing guests for that class. I booked the editor for December magazine, which is a big literary magazine. I booked a woman. Her name is, hold on, I will get it here, Marsha Aldrich, who has co-edited a whole bunch of essays. She's an essay writer herself. And I just booked last week the co-founder of Authors Publish, which is a great email I get a few times a week. And we're going to talk to her about how they pick the magazines that they suggest writers submit. So that's going to be in the essay class. And I also co-facilitate the monthly We See You, We Hear You women's only writing group from Story Summit. And we just came out last December with um, a, a book, of, an anthology of everybody's writing. There, We asked for submissions. Um, during this We See You, We Hear You class, there's three to four prompts and everybody has five minutes to write based on the prompt. And so we asked the women to submit and we got a whole bunch of submissions and we put it together. There was me and four of the women, Deb Engel, Lisa Reese, Robin Joy Nobles, and Lena Lambert. And we met every week editing all of these. We didn't really edit the pieces because we want everybody to submit what they wrote raw. We wanted the vulnerable raw pieces. So we encouraged them, just keep what you wrote do not change it up or anything. And we didn't change. We just, we read them and decided what category they should be in, that kind of thing. And if there was some grammar or something that really wasn't right on the page, we would ask the uh, author if we could just change that a word or something like that. But we didn't change the context of what they submitted. And um, that turned out to be really great, fun process. Right now we're in the process of marketing that and, and promoting it. So we're all meeting about that. And, you know, as, as you know, writing, it's almost like writing. I'm not going to say it's the easy part because writing can be traumatic. It was very traumatic for me to write some of the stories in empty cupboards. Um, it, but marketing and promotion are a whole different ballgame. Uh, I have a question about the um, We See You, We Hear You mm-hmm. class. Can you tell us more about that, the costs involved when it is in case our listeners want to jump on that? The cost is absolutely my favorite four-letter word, which is free. (laughs) It is free. It doesn't cost women anything to join this monthly class. It's like the middle Wednesday of every month. It starts at, uh, let's see, 1 o'clock Eastern, which would be 11. I'm all messed up with my times right now because I'm in a different state. But 1 o'clock Eastern, which would be 12 o'clock. 2 o'clock Central. 12 o'clock Central, 11 o'clock Mountain. 10 o'clock Pacific time, and it's for two hours, and it's free. And they just go to storysummit.us, and you can scroll down, and you'll find the link to We See You, We Hear You. Do you want to tell us more about how they can find your essay class? The essay class is also storysummit.us. It's on there. It's called Writing in Pieces, and the link is there. It's for the four weeks. It's eight hours of dive deep essay work. We may go a little bit longer, who knows, because sometimes we do that. And it's $197 for the four sessions. Okay. Thanks. Yes, absolutely. I have a question, um, Stacey. So with this, with this essay that you were talking about that people had submitted and so where, where are people, going to be able to find this and read this? Are you guys creating a book or is it going to be on the internet or where, where is that going to, where are all those stories going to be? The We See You, We Hear You anthology is on Amazon. Yeah. So they can go to Amazon okay. and okay. they just so go that. type in We See You, We Hear You 
and it's right there. It's got a beautiful cover. Betty Kristoff did the cover. It's three different women on the cover, and it's We See You, We Hear You Anthology Volume 1. Oh, okay. Awesome. And I'll, and I'll have you definitely, um, I'll put those in the show notes for everybody so they can go there. So that's awesome. I I'm excited to see that too. Yeah, me too. It was, I mean, it was just, it was just so great. We're waiting for the author copies because author copies from Amazon take forever to, to get to us. That's the one thing that, you know, self-publishing versus having a traditional publisher or a high, you know, a hybrid, the hybrid and traditional will get the author copies to you a little bit sooner, I think, but Amazon right. takes its own um, time. So. Yeah. So with that, with that, we see you, we hear you. Was there a, I mean, was there, is it just all different broad stories about people or was it a specific? So how that works is, talk? so every month we have a theme, for example, the We See You, We Hear, we just did two days ago, a couple of days ago, the theme was New Beginnings because it's January 2024. So Deb Inkle uh, leads a very short meditation. And then from that, she'll give a prompt to the, to the women and the women have five minutes to write. And then they, ha- they can share. They can share what they've written. Um, they don't have to share if they don't want to. If they want to copy and paste what they've written into the chat, they can do that. And then I will come up with uh, a, another prompt based on the, the theme. And Catrice Green, who often co-facilitates with us, she'll come up with a prompt. And if we have time for a fourth prompt, then we usually use something based on what one of the women writers said in their writings, because they're so inspirational. And some of these women have never spoken out loud before and have never talked about the things that they're writing about. And we just are inspired by what they do and we'll use something from somebody else's writing to do another prompt. And the two hours goes by very quickly. I, I'd, oh, I can only imagine. I'd like to mention that Deborah Engel was my writing coach. Yes. For my she's, book. She's my, I met her. Yeah, she's great. I met her through Okaboji writers retreat. She was one of the speakers, uh, facilitators there and absolutely wonderful person. Um, I also did her, as we spoke earlier, her class, uh, of course in miracles, she's just a great, great, um, facilitator. She can just do anything. Yeah. So I guess with that, then, um, what, what's, I know Michelle has told me a lot about, um, the classes are at the Okaboji writers retreat, the different things that you have, um, that you offer or you, the classes you do, right, Michelle? Um, actually, Stacy is not was not part of the Okaboji Writers Retreat. What we have in common uh, with that is Deborah Engel, right? Stacy's. <laughs> I in, got in, you. Um, okay, we have the Story Summit in common. So, oh, I got yeah. you. Okay, I was mistaken. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, but Stacy, I think I'd like to hear now more about your path of finding your light after your trauma in your life and all the things you've went through, how did you find your way out of that to, to get to the other side? Yeah, it's a, I would, I I would say it was something that was, um, I have the, the, the image in my head of a, uh, of a snowball. So there was a snowball effect, which I think helped lead to my fabulous nervous breakdown and maybe a reverse snowball. So that was a snowball going down the hill, collecting all the BS of everything that had happened in my life. 
And that included a very acrimonious divorce. Um, my son, in 2003, I had to have him taken out of my house at, 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 you know, very early in the morning because he was just not being a, he was getting into a bunch of trouble as a teenager. And there was that. And then, um, then I had the cancer in 2008 and just a bunch of, a bunch of things kept happening. But I, I think, and then oh, this recent thing, <laughs> I see the snowball ended with a whole bunch of stuff on it in December, 2017. Uh, my older son, the one who was getting in trouble as a teenager, he became a violent meth addict. And I know there's a lot of people out there who are going to be hearing this that have addiction and alcoholism in their families or know somebody who's got addiction and alcohol. It, 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 it's everywhere. It's, you can't escape it. You either it's in your family, everybody's affected by it. Um, we know somebody who's close to us that has had problems with that. And my older son let crystal meth get the best of him. He became violent and he got arrested and he's now serving, he's now serving um, a sentence in Montana. And when that happened, our whole world imploded. It was one of the worst days of my life when I found out he was arrested. It was, it, it, it really tore, I want to say it didn't tear our family apart. It was like when you throw a rock in a lake and then the ripple effect just goes out, that's exactly what happened. And I can talk about it now without breaking down and crying almost, <laughs> you know, so, um, and, and if it weren't for my wonderful husband, my second and final husband, I should say, and my girlfriends, oh my gosh, girlfriends, 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 I can't put enough exclamation points on girlfriends, um, that helped me get through this. And plus I got therapy. Um, I had, I've had therapy on and off since my breakdown. Um, but I found another therapist closer to where I lived, who is my age, who has kids, who understands what it's like to have troubled children and, and girlfriends. I'm going to keep going back to girlfriends and Al-Anon. I have a wonderful Al-Anon family who very, who very much helped. And they really helped all, all of that combined helped me just grab myself up by the bootstraps again. I, I remember going to my first Al-Anon meeting. My, one of my girlfriends took me in De on December 30th, 2017. And I can barely say, hi, my name is Stacy. I was just crying the entire time. And that was in Los Angeles. And then when I got home, I live in a very small mountain community in the Sierra Nevada mountains. I got home, I found the Al-Anon meeting there. And I walked in and I was like, holy crap, I know everybody here. And I couldn't believe that all these people who sometimes I interview because I was a journalist in Mammoth and I was a news director and I would interview people all over the county. A lot of them were there and I couldn't believe that they all had, we call them qualifiers in their family, alcoholics and addicts. So that all, it was reassuring, but terrifying at the same time. And it was a combination of things. And plus um, meditating, walking, um, eating as best I can. I do have comfort foods I go to. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you know, so um, my downfall is bread. So I, that's something I, I had to work on. Um, and, and just a combination of all that and realizing I don't have to fix everything, that it's not up to me to to enable. That's a great you know word that everybody uses. Every, everybody not. And I can see where I enabled my ex-husband. I can see where I enabled my, my older son who got into a lot of trouble. 
and ignored a lot of things. And I don't know if it's age or it's a combination of all this help I, I got I reached by reaching out for spiritual help, um, for reality help, you know, about how I was involved and what my part was in some of these things that happened in my life, um, that I can just only, I can only work on me. I can only, I have to stay in my own lane. I cannot help anybody else's behavior. I cannot help what anybody is going to do because they're going to do it no matter what. And as far as my older son goes with his meth addiction, he's um, six years now. He's been sober five years because in in jail, he's in prison, but in jail, they don't do cavity checks. Can I say that on the air? And somebody brought in crystal meth to the jail and wow. he got a hold of it. And that was horrible. And at the same time, he he has been sober for five years now. He found God. Um, God is his new addiction. Jesus is his new addiction. And he can't believe that he didn't let God into his life sooner. And it's working for him. And um, I'm not a very religious person. And yet I want to know from my son how how God and Jesus are helping him. And, and he's told me a bunch of miracles that have happened to him in prison. And so um, this is his new path he's on. He is almost done with his paralegal work. And he's going to do some advanced paralegal work. He's working in the Religious Study Center, and he's taken full responsibility of everything he did. He finally admitted wow. that he's totally responsible for getting himself there. Actually, two years ago, there was a chance that he could have challenged the sentence because there was some legal hanky-panky that went on there. And he said to me, he goes, Mom, I just wanted to let you know that I, I said I didn't want to appeal this because I did what I did, and I deserve to be here. Wow. So yeah, very mature. So, yeah. So he's, he's yeah. doing well. And, and, you know, for those can, people out there who are parents, when your kids are doing well, you're doing well. <laughs> so can I, can I ask like how long a sentence he has? 40 years. Oh my. Yeah. Yeah. If it's Montana, it's a tombstone state, I call it, but it's 40 years. Um, he had never been in jail or prison before. And if this happened in California, a sentence probably wouldn't have been as long and he may be out already, but it's, it's not, it's Montana. It happened in a place where the, the person he hurt was very well enmeshed in the city and the town, the County. And so he got nailed. Um, so so, you know what, it is what it is. And I'm hoping he'll be up for parole in four years. And I'm just hoping I get to hug him again before I die. Um, how often do you get to see him? Um, about once a year, well, we do video calls so I can actually see him whenever we can get a video call together. Um, wow. hugging, I've been up, able to go up there. I, I should, I, I was sort of misspoke. I do get to go up there to uh, visit, um, since COVID they've let people go up there to, to visit them again. And I have, I did hug him last September. So, um, yeah, so that was good. Played a game of chess, which he kicked my butt. He's, that's all, he's playing a lot of chess up there and he's very good. So, um, wow. yeah, so I just, um, I hope, I hope I'm alive so I can see him taking advantage of a second chance that he's been given, <coughs> you know, um, if I he gets hope out you before. get that chance. Yeah, me too. I do too. And we both know, um, yeah. that if it doesn't happen, if I die before he gets out there, that we'll still see each other in the afterlife where we, we believe in that soul tribes and that this planet earth that we're living on is, uh, it's, it's a hell of a testing ground, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. It's pretty yeah. crazy. I'm all into mediums and psychics and spirit tribes and all that kind of thing. And 
And um, I, I, I know that I have a spirit tribe and a soul tribe that I work with. And, and so does he. And, um, I, you know, when this whole happened, I asked myself, why me? Why am I the mother of this type of person? Because there are families that it's not uncommon for cousins and uncles to be in, in jail and prison all the time. It's super uncommon for our family for this to happen. So he's given us all a lesson here. You talk about mediums. Yeah. That's a, that's an impressive story. That's for sure. I'm writing, I'm writing a book Um, about it called the inch between us because the first time I saw him in jail, I put my hand up on the glass. He put hand, his hand up on the glass and there was about an inch of glass between us. So it's called the inch wow. between us, and it's very traumatic writing about um, some of the things I'm having to write about now. Even more traumatic than some of the essays in empty cupboards, and some of those are pretty <laughs> gnarly. You know, and Angie's well, yeah. in the- So when do you think that'll come out then? What was that? When do you think the your book will oh, come well, out then? Oh, well, I'm, I'm finishing it and us. bringing Deb Engel up again. She's going to be coaching me through the process of um, writing a proposal She's going to be helping me get the whole book together. Um, I'm writing it in pieces because I'm remembering things that happened. And so I do that chapter and plug it into the manuscript. And so as I, once I have the first draft, I'm going to hire her to help me do the proposal. And I don't, I don't know. I want to get a traditional publishing deal with this one. So I can't tell you when it'll come out. So um, you, you brought up mediums and spirit tribes and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, and Angie's writing a book too right now, but... As you know, I published my book last year. Yes, uh, better yes, not bitter. Yes. Journey better from not, heartache. Better not bitter. Bitter um, not better. Yep. And uh, in that, I write a lot about my experience with mediums and mm-hmm. after death communications and stuff like mm-hmm. that. You do. Um, mm-hmm. But you also mentioned that about the trauma in you know what's going on as you write, and I felt that when I. Um, when I wrote my book. So I did you get understand. Sick? Did you get, cause I uh, writing. Some I, things I, I, did. Actually got I, sick. Act- I actually got back into therapy as I was writing. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Cause I, I, yeah. I mean, it's when you write about trauma, you could get sick and I got, I got physically ill. I had to put it down for a couple months. Yeah. I, just- I, I did too. I had, well, I was losing my vision too at the time. And so uh, it became, you know, a lot of what I wrote was I wrote it back when um, it was happening. I had oodles and oodles of notes and uh, journal writing. And so it was just a matter of putting that together. And um, that was just really painful. Re- going is. back and um, reading what I had written because I realized how angry I had been at the time. And you talk about being a family member of a qualifier or somebody that, you know, has the addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on the other side of that fence, as you know, um, somebody who was ill and had an addiction is the one that took my husband's life. Yeah. So yeah. that was a very long and painful journey of finding my way through to forgiveness. But I did, uh-huh. I did. I can actually say I, I forgave the drunk driver and, um, yeah, I, I had to step back inside of myself and go really deep and and, the, and let the nurse in me come forward and say to myself, that woman had a disease that was out of her control at the time. And she has to live. She did. She I can't remember. Did she live? She or was killed live? at the same she, time. Yeah, that's right. OK. Yeah. OK. It's been a while since I read the book. I mean, I this is me with book reading. I read so many books 
And if somebody t- asks me a week from when I finished a book, what it was about, I'm like, uh, <laughs> because I just I'm the same so much, way. Yeah. Just like, I know it was about this woman whose husband was killed and da, 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 da you know, but the yeah, details, I just, yeah, the details, I just, I don't remember. Um, so we kind of, we touched base on how you found your light again. Um, you went to Al-Anon and girlfriends so, <laughs> and your girlfriends and girlfriends and then yeah. girlfriends. Yeah. Um, what advice do you have for, do you have a single piece of advice I for somebody have this- who might be listening and has somebody that's uh, ill with a di- disease of addiction? Do you have- I do. This is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite quotes, and I don't know where it came from, and I, I didn't write it, but I keep it with me. I, it's almost like saying the serenity prayer over and over again. Um, and for those of you who don't know the serenity prayer, it's uh, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, but this one is, quote, you may not be able to save someone from their misery but you sure as hell can save yourself from their misery. Oh, wow. Wow. I love that. I love that. Well, Stacy, I am so thankful that you came on to join us. I do believe we lost Angie. Um, she is maybe having some technical difficulties because of the weather out in the Midwest. I've been You've watching had a that, lot yeah. of storms. <laughs> yes, you have. It's crazy out there. And the wind does something. Oh, yeah. to too, I'm a weather so. nerd and I'm a weather nerd and I've been watching all that and I'm like, holy moly. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, with that, I would like to invite our listeners to check out Stacy's book, uh, empty cupboards and watch for her new book that will be coming out in the future. The inch between us. Did I get that right? You did. And then also check out story summit. Uh, to find out what writing classes you can take that might help you on your journey of writing. And then also the book that they recently produced, We See You, We Hear You, the anthology volume one that Stacey, uh, I guess, co-edited. 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 Stunning, stunning writing in there from many, many women. It's beautiful. Yes, it is. I have it. I'm, I'm holding the book right now. It's a beautiful cover. So anyway... I thank you from both Angie and I uh, for coming on and joining us and working through the glitches we've had technically with our podcast this week because of the weather. No worries. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. This has been a pleasure to do this. And um, I just thank you. I'm very, very grateful. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Stacey. We'll see you at one of your classes. Yay. (laughs) Bye.